The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Today's scripture is from Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. This is God's good word to us. I want to frame this sermon today in telling you that this is good news. Good news for you if you are looking to be built up and encouraged. It's good news, not good advice, because today is going to be an advice-free day. It's also going to be a day free of just good suggestions. And I'm thrilled to give you this good news. Good news that's packaged within the first miracle recorded in the book of Acts, followed by Peter's sermon, which explains the miracle. And in chapter 1, we have seen that Jesus' followers performed many wonders and miraculous signs. We're told that they are doing these things, and here we're given a very dramatic example of such a miracle. And this miracle is a great example of how God uses every miracle that he performs, which is pointing to the good news 
for us, the blessings that we have in Jesus. You know, think about the crowds and put yourself in this situation. Uh, follow along with them. They gather because an amazing thing has happened. A man who is in his 40s, he's crippled from birth, he is so physically disabled that he couldn't even move himself to the entrance of the temple. He had to be carried there. He became as common of a landmark as the gate itself. Everyone knew him. And now he's running about the city like a brand new baby goat being born, straight out of the gate. Awkward for sure, a little bit uncomfortable or even unconfident by running for the first time. And Peter seizes the opportunity to teach about Jesus as the crowds gather around him. And he says the significance of this amazing thing that has happened is far bigger than this man. It's even far bigger than the the work that they have done. He says, why are you amazed by this? Stop looking at this man. Why are you amazed at us? Don't even look at us. But he points them to Jesus. He tells them the story of Jesus. He was was the gift from God that is sent to bless them, to save them. But instead of receiving Jesus, they handed him over to be punished and killed. And instead of of receiving Christ, even when he was proven innocent by Pilate, they receive instead a murderer in his place. But God did not keep him dead. He raised him from the dead. And it is by faith in this risen Jesus that has caused this man to be healed. Peter ends his teaching by challenging his hearers, repent, turn back, completely change your mind about everything that you have come to know about Jesus and trust in him. And those who do respond in turning away from their sin and turning to Christ for hope receive the promised blessing of God. These three blessings from God. And here is the first of three blessings that I want to give to you today. And this is all about good news today. The first of three blessings is this. Your sins are wiped out. The expression here is referring to an ancient the ancient writing. They would write ink with ink on papyrus, and the ink had no acid in it like it does today. So it didn't really sink into the paper and take and dry uh, really quickly. Rather, it, it kind of stayed on the surface, and it took a long time to soak into the paper. And if the scribe made a mistake or desired to change his writing, he would simply take a wet sponge and wipe it away. Imagine this, your entire lives... You live your entire lives, and following you is this invisible scribe. And this scribe writes down everything that you say. Every sin, every harsh word, every evil thought, every act of indecency, pride, or anger. Everything is written down. Not a single thing is missed. What's the worst of all sins that you think comes to mind to you? Maybe what are the top three things that you wish this scribe would just turn a blind eye to and maybe forget to write down? What would you give to have this slate completely wiped clean? Every sin blotted out. Every paper ripped up. Every word erased. Well, Peter reads back the worst sins that they have committed. 
He is the one that acts like a scribe that is recording all of their misdoings. And he records and reads back some of the worst things. He says, God sent you your Savior. You rejected him. You had him arrested, even when no fault was found in him. And not only did you have him arrested, you had a murderer released instead, and you killed the author of life. Killing God, I think we can agree, is the worst thing you can do. And it is precisely the thing that they are forgiven of. If they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Have you failed this week? Have you sinned? Lost your temper? Been consumed with envy? Have you been unsatisfied by God's love for you? If God wipes clean the sin of murdering his own son, nothing stands in the way of him forgiving you. It's hard to believe that this is exactly what Jesus offers in the gospel. This is what Jesus claimed, that his death and resurrection was the only suitable payment for the forgiveness of sins. The most fundamental and basic claim of Christianity is that God forgives sinners. We know this about God. You do not have to be raised in the church or even come to church that frequently to know that one of the core characteristics of the nature of God is that He is a God who forgives. And we might not think that this is a very big deal. And I think it's because we think far too little of our sin. We say, yeah, I know that I sin from time to time. I can probably work on becoming a better person. But in the Bible, sin is the absolute worst thing that you can do. It is the most terrifying thing to find yourself in a, in a position of sin before God. So bad that it's punishable by death. It is a result of our direct rebellion against God. And so to be forgiven of our sins is the best news that you can be told. It was such a bold claim that anyone claiming to forgive sins was claiming to have the very power of God. It is the very reason that God's people in ancient times devised rituals and a sacrificial system handed down from God to forgive their sins, to wipe the slate clean, at least for a time. They were very careful with everything they did, hundreds of rituals and, and activities that they participated in so that they could become pure and clean. All of these things that signified the washing away of sins. They took it very seriously. They lived in a mentality and culture of rituals for the chief purpose of washing away their sin. And so it's a bold claim and a very important thing to say that God forgives your sins. You know, maybe you remember the story of, of a disabled man that Luke, Luke tells in, the, in Luke chapter 5 when his friends bring this disabled man and he's on a, a, a gurney and they, they want to get to Jesus. Jesus is gathered in a home uh, by a very small yet uh, crowded uh, group of people and they, they climb onto the roof, they break a hole in the ceiling and they raise their friend through the roof. And as Jesus sees them do this, he calls out to the man who's paralyzed and says, your sins are forgiven. 
And there's some murmuring and some chatter that happens among the crowd, among the spiritual leaders that have been gathered there. And they're saying, how dare you claim that this man's sins are forgiven? Only God can do that. Jesus, kind of knowing their heart and hearing their words, he says, oh, okay, well, you have an issue with me claiming that this man's are for, sins are forgiven. And, and what is more difficult to say? Is it more difficult for me to say this man's sins are forgiven? Or is it more difficult for me to say, get up and walk? What is Jesus doing? Well, he's wanting to prove a point. He's wanting to prove a point that it's very easy to say your sins are forgiven and yet be proven to be fake because no one will ever know if this man's sins are truly forgiven. Anyone can go around saying your sins are forgiven and we can't prove that. It's very hard to say, on the other hand, get up and walk to a paralyzed man and still be a fraud because the proof is instantaneous that this this man either gets up and walks and you prove to be who you say you are Or he doesn't, and you prove to be a fraud. And so it's as if Jesus is saying, I'll make you a bet. If this man gets up and walks when I tell him to get up and walk, then you agree that when I say his sins are forgiven, then you agree that I have the power to forgive this man's sins. And so Jesus says, get up and walk. And the man gets up and he walks home. The greatest thing a person can ever have done to him is to be forgiven of their sins. The love of God manifest and is wiping clean of your record of sin is seen in no clearer place than where Jesus died for those sins. It is seen in no clearer place than on the cross. Where we say, how do I know? I need a watertight argument. I need to know that when you say my sins are forgiven then they really are forgiven. It's easy to say those things. Can you prove it? And Jesus says, I'll give you no other sign. No other sign than the fact that I have died and am risen. The greatest thing a person can have done to them is to have their sins forgiven. And it comes not through our own striving. It comes through Jesus' suffering. How do we know our sins are forgiven? Because we know that Jesus died on the cross for those sins. And he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the grave. It's a great thing to hear that your sins are wiped clean. Is there something on your record? Is there something that this invisible, hypothetical scribe who has followed you around your entire life that you wish would just be blotted out from your record? Are there many things on there? Is it just a habit of who you are and how you have behaved that you wish never existed? Do you know that because Jesus died on the cross for your sins and has risen from the grave, defeating death and sin itself, that as we turn from our sin in repentance, acknowledging our, our weakness and our failure to obey God and looking to Christ as the hope of our redemption. We are told that our sins are blotted out, erased, cast out from us. And Christ looks at us, not as people with a former record or ones that are just getting better at becoming good, but as ones who have received his perfect righteousness. 
We are looked at by God as righteous, not on our own righteousness, but because of Jesus' perfection. There is no fault in Christ. And through faith in what he has done for us, God sees no fault in us. What a good thing to be told. What good news for today. And this would be plenty enough. If this was the only good news I had, we could close and we would leave rejoicing in God's mercy and goodness to us. But there is so much more that God intends to give us. The second promised blessing that we have in the gospel is this. You will be refreshed. Peter says this in his sermons. He says, a time of refreshing may come from the presence of God in your life. And he will send to Christ to you. You will be refreshed. Refreshment, rest, relief, respite, peace. It is what your soul is looking for when you go to the nail salon, when you go to the spa, when you go on vacation to the beach, when you go to the bar, when you go to the couch, the resort, the golf club, the coffee shop with a good book and a journal. What you are seeking is rest and respite from the busyness of your day. The forgiveness of sins and the rest from God are both blessings, but they are very different in nature. Our sins are forgiven, we are told, as a one-time act of God's free grace, where He wipes clean our past record, the current blemishes, the future errors, it is an act of God's free grace whereby the sinner is deemed forgiven. You are forgiven in Jesus. And the refreshing is a work that God continues to do. It comes from the nature of our communion with Him. He offers to us not only a clean slate once and for all, but He offers to us peace, daily, increasing rest. It's the reason why we so often say this phrase, as soon as I get blank, I will be able to rest. What is in that blank for you? As soon as I get that bonus, I will get rest. As soon as I get through this busy work season, as soon as I get out of the, the diaper stage, as soon as you get over this conflict in your marriage or get out of this relationship or get into that new relationship or get out of debt or get into college or get into summer break or get out of summer break, then I will have rest. It's really busy right now, but as soon as I get on from this stage, then I will find rest. And all I need to do is just time will heal the sense of urgency for peace in my life. And it is sure that when you do accomplish that thing that you're wanting, you, it will provide for you better sleep for a handful of nights, but they will fail to give you the rest that you truly need. There's a reason why you keep bouncing from one unsatisfied accomplishment and event to the next, frustrated and anxious, because those things are never meant to accomplish the rest that only Jesus can provide. Only Jesus can refresh your soul. 
to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, but fail to rest in Him through the trials of our day, is to forget what our greatest problems really are. As bad as our suffering is, and as, as, as committed as God is to ending suffering, our suffering is never our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is always a heart that is not filled with the love of God. And Jesus describes for us in Matthew 6 the kind of person who is anxious and troubled and not at rest so frequently, whose peace is being choked out by the cares of the world, what they will wear and what they will eat, what they will become and what will become of the people who they care about the most. He describes a person who pursues peace by accomplishing tasks or accumulating possessions or controlling the outcome of our daily lives. And here's the problem. It takes way more than what you think it takes to fill your soul to satisfaction. You know, the remedy for an anxious existence is not found in what we accomplish or obtain or moving from one stage to the next. That will always leave you incredibly frustrated. Do you know what the cure is for it all? It is found in that still small voice of Jesus that tells us, I am with you, and I care for you, and I will never forsake you, and I have accomplished for you what you could not accomplish for yourself. And I have come to you to give you peace. The remedy for our continual striving is to see Jesus accepting us, accomplishing us, and accomplishing for us the things that we absolutely need. Forgiveness of sins, mercy and grace, love from God. Do you need to hear that still small voice today? Have, have, has the, the loud bullhorn type voices and chatter of your life, has it drowned out your ability to hear what God is saying to you. That if you belong in Him through faith, then He offers you rest and refreshment increasingly in your day and every day. What a great blessing of the gospel, of this good news. Isn't it good news that our rest comes not from our striving, but it comes from God as a gift? And then we go on to see the third promise of His blessing to us. You will be utterly restored. Now, something incredibly beautiful is happening here in this passage. Luke is being very intentional. He is showing an incredible amount of restraint in his retelling of the story. And I'll show you how he does this. Remember that Luke was not only a historian, he was a doctor. I've been around a lot of doctors, maybe you have too, and they all have one thing in common. They get incredibly giddy when they witness any kind of medical or biological oddity. They geek out about details of a condition, and the more extreme, the more debilitating a case, the more descriptive they become, the more excited they are. What does Luke the doctor tell us about this man's condition? Almost nothing. This man has a congenital condition and hadn't been able to walk his entire life. And Luke simply says exactly that. He simply says there was a man 
who was lame from birth. And that's it. No flashy words, no lengthy description. He was lame from birth. Luke is a doctor and he's bringing out the features that he thinks are important for us to hear. And he wants us to know a lot, not about the condition of this man before the miracle, but the condition of this man after. In verse 7, what do we learn? Incredibly descriptive words of this man after he is healed. His ankles and feet were made strong. He leapt up from his seated position. He stood up and he walked. There was some more walking, and if we, in case we are misunderstood about what this man is doing, we see that he is walking again and leaping and praising God. He is a man who has become filled with joyful energy. The Hebrew writers would have immediately been able to recognize the fulfillment of what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 35. Chapter 35 describes what will happen in this world when Jesus returns to make everything perfect. To restore us in our whole being, our body and soul, heaven and earth, all new and all glorious. And he says what? He says the lame will leap for joy. The mute tongue will shout with praises. And Peter is drawing here the same connection. His sermon is a deep theological connection between the miracle that just happened and what Jesus will do when he returns. And Peter says in verse 21, Jesus must stay in heaven until the time comes to return to earth and restore everything according to all that God has told us. What is the miracle in this passage, really? I mean, for sure, it's a miracle that this man who could not walk and never was able to walk is now running through the city with joy. But the greater miracle that we are so clearly pointed to is this, that for those who have faith in Jesus and have repented from sin and turned to Christ, any and every affliction in this life is temporary. That's a miracle in itself. I imagine this man sitting at the gate that he has done, like he has done for 40 years. He asks two strangers for money, and Peter and John kneel closer and say, Gold and silver I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And of course, I am speculating here, but for a moment, I have to imagine that the first thing through this man's head is, you could have just said no and moved on. I'm just looking for a little help. I'm just looking for some money. All you could say is, not today, I don't have anything on me, and move along. But somehow this man was stirred to faith to believe in what Peter and John were saying. Hebrews 11 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the ability to see beyond what we can see and to trust in what we cannot see, but what we have been told. He has faith to stretch out his hand and take hold of Peter 
to believe something that is utterly unbelievable. And like this man, we usually begin by seeking far less than God wants to give us. All that this man wanted was money. And now, in retrospect of this story, we see that money was a very small thing compared to what he really got. What we see is that this man did not get money, but what he got was physical healing and probably salvation. We ordinarily go to God just for help with a problem or strength in a time of need or forgiveness for a particular sin that has manifested itself in our life. But when we come to the real God, He really gives us something far greater. He ends up making far greater changes in our lives than we ever envisioned. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, Imagine yourself a living house. You ask God to make some repairs, and at first, He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. But presently, He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts very badly and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is He up to, we ask? The explanation is that He's building quite a different house from the one you thought and imagined. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. Every physical miracle done by Jesus or done by the apostles are not meant to draw our ultimate attention to the, to the here and now, but to draw our ultimate attention to the ever after. Why is it that every miracle of Jesus and his apostles deal with the alleviation of some kind of pain and suffering. Isn't it interesting that if you were to think of a sign and a miracle to do, you probably wouldn't choose the miracles that the apostles or Jesus does. I mean, think about it. Have, I have wondered often if they really want to make a point, if they want to authenticate their claims, and they have the power of the Holy Spirit at their disposal, why didn't they do something amazing like flying? Why didn't they say, okay, if you want to really believe my message, think of, a, think of a number between one and a million. Couldn't they get that right? Couldn't they fly above the buildings and the trees? Couldn't they instantaneously turn water into wine like Jesus did? Couldn't they walk on water like Jesus did? Why did they choose these kinds of miracles? Well, we see the New Testament, particularly in Acts, we see it filled with miracles of alleviating pain and suffering. And here is why. It is to show us what awaits sinners who repent of their sins and turn to Jesus for life. It is to be for us a guidepost. It is to be for us a picture and a foretaste of what life with Jesus will be like forever the removal of pain and suffering, the alleviating of all brokenness and weakness, everything that ails us and this world will be mended perfectly. Are you unhappy with the world and the way it is? Are you unhappy with the brokenness of your own suffering in this life? Are there things that grieve you? God is grieved as well. He hates it just as much as you do. And he promises to put right everything that is wrong. The lame man points us to something. 
If we see every story and character in the Bible as a kind of moral lesson we need to follow, we will be overloaded with guilt. If you look at the Bible and only think, gosh, I really need to get my act together, I really need to be a better person, you'll lose all joy in reading the Bible. You'll miss the point of it completely. It is possible to read the entire Bible and miss the central point of it all. If you read this story and you say, I really need to have the faith like Peter and John. I really need to be a better Christian. I need to have more boldness and confidence. What's wrong with me? Well, then you will miss the good news. The point of the story is not, have you done great things for Jesus like Peter and John? You see, we are not meant to identify in this story with Peter and John. Do you know who we are in this story? We are meant to identify with the man who is broken and cannot walk. Crippled since birth and reaching out in faith to Christ who is our champion, our victory, our strength. My friends, it is not your calling to be a superhuman disciple who go around fixing every problem that you face in your life. It's not your calling to take risks on your own courage, not to live up to anyone's standard of perfection. It is not your calling to be a champion and a hero in all that you do. That is a crushing expectation. But here is what your calling is. To see Jesus behind every character in the Bible, every circumstances in your life, every grief that comes your way, and to see Him as your Redeemer, your forgiver, your champion, so that you too can take risks and trust God and have victories in your life and walk by faith, knowing that whether you fail or succeed, nothing can change your position with a God who loves you, who has wiped clean your sins, who has blotted out every misdoing and every transgression. Has God comforted you in the midst of grief and deep loss and struggle? Then, then here's some good news. You have a story to tell. You have a message to give. Have you, ha have you been forgiven of your sins? Then you have a message to tell. Have you found peace in your life through the fellowship of Jesus? Then you have a message to tell. And that message sounds something like this. I once could not walk, but now I can walk. I can't tell you how, but I can tell you who. Who did this? It's Jesus. It is Jesus who loves me, forgives me, refreshes me, and promises complete wholeness to everything that is broken. That's who. If you have been changed by Jesus, you have a testimony. And your calling and purpose in life is to testify to the good news of His gospel. You see, we are faithful witnesses, not because we are great Christian followers and bold in our faith, and champions in, in our life. We are faithful witnesses to pointing to Jesus, who is a miracle worker, who takes sinners and makes them free, who takes chaos and grief and anxiety and gives us refreshment, and who takes the uncertainty of this world and of our life and gives us a promise that will never fade. Isn't this good news? Let's pray together.